we've had a couple of very interesting papers talking about the production and later history of the manuscript. I'd like to turn now to looking at uh, what's actually in the manuscript, and I'm going to focus on its interest in Middle Eastern uh, history. Uh, I'm going to first, though, just in case any of you are kind of unfamiliar with the medieval historiography, I'm going to outline some of the medieval approaches to history writing, which we can see reflected uh, in the Book of Urania. Uh, then I'm going to talk about some texts that are specifically in the manuscript before hopefully uh, drawing it all to some kind of uh, coherent conclusion. So, first of all then, um, the theory of Heilsgeschichte, uh, rendered in English as salvation history, was developed by scholars of the Old Testament in the mid-20th century. As one theologian has noted, uh, the image of a God who acts in history predominated in the theology uh, of the generation after World War II. So rather than being viewed as a kind of static repository of theological truths, the Bible came alive as the record of a people's developing relationship with God. Now this 20th century theology has direct parallels with the way that biblical narrative and the course of history were understood by medieval intellectuals. To take the words of Konstantinos Patrides, the God of Israel is not an impersonal abstraction dwelling beyond the confines of the universe and utterly incommunicable. On the contrary, as the Bible repeatedly insists, he is a living God, and because living, concerned actively with the affairs of his creatures, always preoccupied with their fortunes, constantly interfering in the course of human events, whether to chastise or reward, to punish or commend, to destroy or to save. Or as Ernst Breisach has shown, the change from pagan Roman historiography to Christian historiography came in asserting the Old Testament view that God worked his ways in history. So we can see an explicit statement of that in Psalm uh, 73, verse 12, which declares, but God is our king before ages. He hath wrought salvation in the midst of the earth. And it's this idea of God uh, bringing about salvation in the midst of the earth that is in medieval Europe bound up with a view derived ultimately from the book of Daniel of history as a series of successive empires or world kingships. And that the rise and fall of these world kingships reveals a secular power that was entirely subject to divine grace. So in medieval historiography then, the whole spectrum of Christian history falls under this rubric of salvation history. And that includes past, present and future culminating in the eschatological resolution of all human history at Judgment Day. So this is history with a beginning, that's creation, a central event, that is the incarnation of Christ, and an ultimate goal, that is the eschaton and Judgment Day. So within this overarching concept of salvation history, then, um, a number of different historical and chronological schemes operated within medieval Europe. Um, and I just roughly and very simplistically characterize them as Augustinian, Erosian, and Eusebian. So Augustinian history first. Uh, although in some of his writings, Augustine used the historical scheme of the period before the law, that's the period before Moses, the period under the law, that is from Moses to the incarnation, and the period of grace, that is from the incarnation to judgment day. The predominant scheme which Augustine used was that of the six ages of the world. So that's dividing all of salvation history into six ages. We are currently living in the, the final and sixth, uh, sixth age. 
And this very influential scheme provides the fundamental framework, for example, for the Irish Sex Aetates Mundi text, The Six Ages of the World, um, as well as many shorter and related chronological uh, texts. Now, Eusebius, on the other hand, provided a, a detailed chronological scheme in which uh, he, in his chronicon, synthesized the events of biblical history with uh, other world history, notably uh, Assyrian, uh, Persian, and Mediterranean uh, history. And so we can see this influence of Eusebian history uh, in the detail of the Irish Sextetates Mundi and also in other so-called synthetic histories uh, which place Ireland's imagined prehistory into a kind of Eusebian uh, paradigm. The Erosian model, named after the historian Erosius, uh, was indebted to both Eusebius and Augustine. Um, but uh, Erosius saw a kind of typological function for the history of these fallen empires. Uh, so the uh, rise and fall of the Assyrian Empire, the Persian Empire, and so on, has a kind of typological function for the post-biblical uh, world. In this sense, the biblical past sheds light uh, on the events of the present and uh, the future. And Erosius emphasizes Daniel's, the Book of Daniel's scheme of four monarchies or empires rather than uh, Augustine's six ages. Now, uh, these kind of preliminary remarks about different historiographical schemes uh, are necessary because all of these forms of historiography were influential in medieval Ireland, and they all played a part in the development of Irish world history, uh, such as that which we see in the Sex Aetates Mundi, but also in the narration and interpretation of biblical history, such as in Shkel Soltroch Naran, uh, in the understanding of British history and its relationship with Irish history, as found in the Lever Brethnach, and uh, in the development of the medieval conception of Irish prehistory, um, as exemplified by the, by the Lever Gavala uh, and related texts. And the centrality of salvation history to medieval Irish intellectual thought is perhaps best evidence in the fact that one or more of the texts that I've just mentioned is to be found in almost every single Irish manuscript of the pre-modern era. So uh, to go back to the first manuscript that we had one of these conferences uh, about LU, we don't know its original foliation and full contents, but it seems very likely that it uh, uh, began with the Sex Aetates Mundi, uh, followed by a copy of the, the Lever Brethnach. Um, Oxford Bodleian manuscript Rawlinson B502, that contains a copy of the Sex Aetates Mundi, also Sultan Aran. Uh, the Book of Leinster contains the Lever Gavala. The Book of Ballymoat, which we talked about at the last conference, contains the Sex Aetates Mundi, texts on the ages of the world, the Lever Brethnach and the Lever Gavala. The Book of Lecan contains the Lever Gavala and the Lever Brethnach. And as we've just been hearing earlier this afternoon, we again don't know the full extent and original contents of the Book of Ivania. Uh, but it certainly contains genealogical material related to the Lever Gavala, the uh, lists uh, which help us to reconstruct some of the lost contents which were mentioned by the previous two speakers suggest that it did contain a copy of the Lever Gavala originally, uh, and it certainly contains uh, a copy of the, the Lever Brethnach. So all of these manuscripts then ground themselves in a common overarching theological historical matrix. But if we look more closely at the thematic emphases of different manuscripts, individual manuscripts, we can see different interpretive strategies, different ways in which the theology of salvation history is worked out, and different priorities in uh, the recording of national and international histories. And quite simply, the, each manuscript is different uh, uh, and interested in different 
slightly different things. So to again uh, quote Constantinus Petrides, he says that the historians of the Middle Ages were both particular and universal. They were universal because they attempted to be all-encompassing, un- all thereby upholding the total jurisdiction of providence throughout the created order, but they were particular because each believed his nation to be God's ultimate concern. And that's true of uh, the compilers of medieval Irish manuscripts who believed Ireland and the Irish nation to be God's ultimate uh, concern. But there, the compilers of these manuscripts are also particular uh, in terms on the microcosmic level of each individual manuscript of what it is precisely that interests them uh, about this uh, salvation, salvation history. So if you take a look at your handout, what you'll see that I've, I've uh, outlined uh, the key sources from the manuscript which uh, display a marked interest in uh, Middle Eastern history, uh, where we find uh, of course the, the origins of uh, biblical history that is uh, fundamental to this worldview. And you can see that there are texts in all of the sections of the manuscripts, all the different um, uh, groups of the manuscript that Bernadette was, was outlining earlier. So this is something that runs right through the manuscript. Uh, we have, for example, on folio, uh, beginning on folio rec- uh, 35 verso, uh, the Lever Brechnach, which is the Irish translation and adaptation of the Historia Britonum. On folio 44 verso, uh, we have the beginning of, of the long poems, uh, beginning Redigdav Aye Donev, which is the poems on world kingship, about which, which we're about to, to hear next. Uh, on 50 recto, we have pedigrees of Christ, Mary, Samuel, other b- biblical personages. Uh, and 53 recto notes on St. Patrick's descent from the children of Israel, and I'll come back to, to that in due course. On folio 66 recto, a long poem beginning Kana Israel Ulla. Uh, on folio 70 recto, the so-called Epstil Methuselah or Schelthotrochneraum, and again, I'll talk about that in a little bit of detail shortly. On folio 73 recto, uh, uh, a, tr- a tract uh, entitled the 12 tribes of Israel. This is a, a geographical uh, tract on the spread of the 12 tribes of Israel. Folio 73 recto, what I'm going to uh, begin with, is the poem uh, beginning Ocasius Yos Kokas. And at folio 114 recto, uh, a very interesting poem, 52 quatrain poem entitled Babylon Balia Buadoch. Uh, and I hope I have time to mention that briefly at the end also. So as you can see, it's it's spread right through the manuscript uh, and uh, a broad range of texts, both genealogical, historical, poetic, uh, geographical, uh, and so on and so forth. So I hope to explore some of this and, as I say, lead us uh, towards some conclusions as to what this uh, Middle Eastern history, what function it serves uh, within the manuscript as a whole. So I'll begin by talking about genealogy. Um, and uh, we're hearing more about genealogies from Professor Higgins tomorrow. Uh, but uh, suffice to say, uh, the genealogies of medieval Ireland are renowned for their shall we say, malleability, uh, the ability of genealogies to change to suit the current political uh, situation. Genealogies could be altered. Uh, and following the very important work of Donica O'Corrine, I think we've recognized their value as, as propagandistic uh, documents. Uh, that uh, certainly reflect the political circumstances of the time of their their composition. Uh, And all that is certainly true, but we shouldn't underestimate the amount of serious historical scholarship which underlay the process of producing uh, genealogy. Uh, And I hope to show an example from Middle Eastern history uh, here in terms of this poem uh, beginning Ocasteus Yoskokas. So uh, we'll begin with the... uh, 
first book of the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew, which opens, uh, you may know, with the genealogy of uh, Christ. It traces uh, Christ's genealogy uh, from uh, being part of the house of David. So I've given you under 1A on the handout just a section, uh, the relevant section of the genealogy uh, from Solomon to Josiah. So Solomon begot Reboam, Reboam begot Abia, Abia begot Asa, Asa begot Josaphat, Josaphat begot Joram, Joram begot Isaiah, Isaiah begot Joatham, Joatham begot Ahaz, Ahaz begot Ezekiel, Ezekiel begot Manasses, Manasses begot Ammon, Ammon begot Josiah. We're going to come back to this section of genealogy in a second. But when Matthew gets to the end of Christ's genealogy, he states, so all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, and from David to the transmigration of Babylon are 14 generations, and from the transmigration of Babylon to Christ are 14 generations. Uh, This is what President Trump's regimes call alternative facts. (laughs) There are indeed 14 generations if you miss out all the other generations that make it not 14 generations. Um, So anyone who reads the Hebrew Bible will quickly ascertain that there are not 14 generations from David to the transmigration of Babylon. Generations are missed out in Matthew's genealogy of Christ. Uh, This obviously isn't helped by the fact that the the Gospel of Luke gives a genealogy of Christ which traces a different genealogy through uh, David's son Nathan rather than through Solomon. So we have two genealogies in the New Testament anyway, but even a cursory reading of the Old uh, Testament will show us that there are missing, uh, missing generations. <coughs> okay. So under number two on your handout, then, I've given you uh, the, the house of David from David down to Ammon. Uh, so the kingship of David begins uh, the United Kingdom of Israel and Judah, uh, which is inherited by his son Solomon. Uh, but when Solomon's son's, uh, son, Rehoboam, uh, takes the kingship, uh, the, the kingdom of Israel refuses to, to recognize his jurisdiction and appoints Jeroboam uh, the first as king of Israel. And there we have a split between the kingdom of northern Israel and the kingdom of Judah. So the line of David continues down the kingdom of of Judah. Um, And uh, here I've uh, confused you by using the the Hebrew forms of the names rather than what you have in the the Gospel of Matthew, which gives slightly different forms of the names, but it's the same uh, genealogy. The important point is that when we get to the king Jehoram, he uh, marries Athaliah, the daughter of Ahab, thereby uniting again the kingdom of northern Israel and uh, the kingdom of uh, Judah. Now, Athaliah, uh, from the house of, of northern Israel, is a daughter of Ahab. Ahab, you may know, is a very wicked king, very bad king. Okay? Uh, and uh, his sinfulness manifested also in his marriage to Jezebel, uh, the uh, archetypal wicked woman. Um, his kind of evil lineage is brought in then to the house of of Judah. And we have these kings, Ahaziah, Jehoash, uh, and Amaziah, who are omitted from Christ's genealogy in the book of Matthew uh, and are considered to be uh, wicked, particularly idolatrous kings. I mean, they're they're worshipping Baal rather than Yahweh, uh, and so these are idolatrous, idolatrous kings. Okay, so what has all, all this got to do with the book of Evania? Well, if you turn over, you'll see uh, under number three of your handout, what I've given you is my working text and translation of a poem on these very kings, Ahaziah, Jehoash, and uh, Amaziah. Now, this is a slightly problematic poem. Um, uh, Mark Schneider's published a text and translation in, in 1990 
my reading differs from, from his and my translation differs from his, but even so, it is, it's a difficult poem. Um, there's a fair number of lines that don't have seven syllables. There's clearly some scribal issues. We heard some pretty harsh comments about the scribes in the previous papers, and I would just echo those comments. The, the scribes clearly missing, uh, missing words. It's, this is not a good copy. Uh, of the poem, but in, in any case, I shall read you from my kind of working translation that comes with lots of question marks. Okay, so what I've got is Ahaziah, twisted Jehoash, the high king Amaziah. They were omitted, it is no false report, in the pedigree of noble Jesus. Athaliah killed so that she brought cruelty, it is well known. Jehoash and a nurse without a wrongful cry. She, that is Jehosheba, hid in the bosom of the temple. Jehoshaphat, without strength, raised Jehoash after this until he obtained his crown clearly, I think, as befitted the son of an oath. They had three, three main bodies, by which means divisions, report without fault, three heads, that is leaders, that are on every single body. Nine men thrice with their victory, they consumed everlasting life. The wickedness of Jehoram, it has not been concealed in union with sinful Ahab, always was inflicted, it is no weak something, there's a word missing there, uh, because of them, on, oh, that's a typo in my hand, that's right, on their great son, Isaiah, and then it ends, Ahaziah, Jehoash, uh, etc. Okay, well, what this uh, verse is referring to is the story uh, by which uh, Athaliah, wicked daughter uh, of Ahab, uh, attempted to kill all of the, the male heirs to the kingship of Judah. Uh, but Athaliah's sister, uh, Jehoshaphat, managed to hide the baby, uh, Jehoash, uh, and he was saved from this massacre and went on to become king of Judah. And that's the kind of biblical episode that's being kind of referred to here with the, the possible nurse uh, hiding the baby without a, a wrongful cry. Okay. But in the final stanza of the poem, the poet also notes uh, this wickedness of Jehoram, which he refers to being uh, in union with sinful Ahab. And here he's referring to the fact that the line of Ahab is united through the marriage of uh, Athaliah with the line of uh, Judah. Uh, and these wicked kings are therefore omitted from uh, the, the genealogy of, of Christ. So this, first of all, portrays an interest in uh, Middle Eastern history, particularly the kingship of Israel and Judah. It displays an interest in the lineage of Christ. But perhaps more importantly, it gives us an example of this very kind of careful genealogical research that underlies some of the other kind of genealogical texts that are there in the manuscript, in the sense that it's genealogical study that reveals that there must be generations missing in the genealogy of Christ, the genealogy of Christ, more than any other genealogy, we want to be kind of accurate uh, and authoritative. Uh, and that poems like this draw attention to these missing kings from uh, the, the genealogy and betray, as I say, an interest in, uh, in kind of Middle, Eastern, uh, Middle Eastern history. So how does this fit in with the other kind of Middle Eastern uh, themed texts that we have uh, in the manuscript? Well, uh, next on your handout, you'll see I've given you uh, just some, a couple of extracts from a very long uh, text known as Shkel Soltroch Naran, the story of Soltroch Naran. Um, although I would uh, note that it also, in this particular manuscript, in the Book of Ivania, has a very interesting title, alternative title, the Epistille Methuselah, or Letter of Methuselah. 
which is not a title that's given uh, elsewhere. Now, Shkel Sosroch Naran is a prose reworking of a very long, early Middle Irish poem uh, called Solper Naran, which tells in verse form the entirety of salvation history from creation through to judgment. But this prose text, Shkel Sosroch Naran, doesn't tell the entirety of salvation history. It only picks out a particular episode uh, of uh, Old Testament history. You can see from the extract that I've given you under 4a that it begins with Abraham. So the text says, Abraham, son of Thair, son of Nahor, was the first righteous man that came into the world after the flood. And he was the man most pleasing to God of the people of the earth on account of his devotion to God and to the truth and for his avoiding of heathens and the adoration of idols. Again, interest perhaps in uh, the kings of Judah is uh, their problematic idolatry. Abraham is singled out as being uh, a just man because of his avoidance of idolatrous practice. Now, it then goes on to tell the uh, kind of narrative of Old Testament history from Abraham, uh, Jacob, the establishment of the 12 tribes uh, of Israel, the story of Joseph of Technicolor Dreamcoat fame. Um, it then gives us the uh, period, uh, the captivity, uh, Moses, the career of Moses, the period in the, in the desert, um, and it goes up to the, the telling the story of Joshua. And then we get a lacuna in the text, so unfortunately we have folios missing, but it picks up right at the end with um, the prophet Elisha and uh, Elijah. And so I've given you the end of the text there under 4b on your handout. It says, we have told the adventures and battles of the children of Israel and their prophets, leaders and priests from Abraham, son of Thair, to Elysius, that is Elijah the prophet, foster son of Elias, Elijah. And the title of this story is the story of Solpen Aram. So, as I say, it doesn't tell the entirety of salvation history. It picks out as being important the period from Abraham through to the period of the prophets, uh, Elisha and Elijah, who again, of course, are famous for having to engage with idolatrous kings or less than, uh, less than exemplary kings, uh, shall we say. Okay, so to, to move on then, uh, another uh, extract uh, from the text, which I've uh, from the manuscript, which I've given you under five uh, on the handout, is this intriguing note on St. Patrick's descent from the tribes of Israel. This is from Folio 53 Recto. And this states that Patrick was of the sons of Israel. But when the sons of Israel were dispersed by Titus and Vespasian throughout the four corners of the world in servitude, in vengeance for the blood of Christ, it is then that his stock reached the Britons. It is on account of the stock of Patrick being of the sons of Israel that God gave the power of baptism and faith in Ireland and the expulsion of demons from her, that is Ireland, to him. Now, this seemingly quite extraordinary statement, which declares that Patrick is directly descended from uh, the sons of Israel, uh, is something that finds expression uh, elsewhere uh, in other texts, most notably in the fourth uh, Latin life of St. Patrick, the so-called Vita Quarta, which begins with the statement, some say that St. Patrick was descended from the Jews, for after our Lord suffered for the salvation of the human race, the Roman army devastated Judea in revenge for his passion, and the Jews were led away captive and scattered throughout the world. And some of them settled among the Armorican Britons, from whom it is said St. Patrick traced his race. This can be learnt from the books of epistles which he wrote himself, where he says, 
We were scattered to the ends of the earth because of our sins, because we did not keep the rules of the Lord and did not observe his commandments. However, it is nearer to the truth, again, a sort of Trump attitude to what's true and what isn't, it's nearer to the truth and more certain that he is speaking of the diaspora that the Britons suffered at the hands of the Romans, as a result of which some of them occupied that land called Amorica next to the Tyrrhenian Sea. So this statement that St. Patrick has descent, direct descent from the tribes of Israel finds purchase elsewhere uh, in medieval Irish tradition and is much stronger than the uh, more kind of widespread parallels that are noted elsewhere between, say, Patrick and Moses. And pa Patrick and Moses are very often compared, uh, but this sort of statement that he's directly descended from the sons of Israel uh, is quite a striking one and perhaps leads us to, to think a little bit about the purpose of some of this interest in Middle Eastern history uh, within, uh, within the texts. So I focused on these particular texts. So I was going to say a quick word about the, the poem on uh, Babylon, Baliabuadoch, uh, which I desperately hoped to be able to show you an, uh, an edition and translation of the text, but I haven't, uh, I haven't completed it and I haven't had time. But it's a very interesting text that talks about the history of Babylon. Uh, it talks uh, in a way that again connects the Middle Eastern history with the Irish material that's found elsewhere uh, in, the, in the Book of Ivania, not least because in this case it gives a kind of dinhenicus for the city of Babylon, which it states is named after a woman called Babylon who dies of shame and has the, the city named after her. This is I've noticed a feature of the Book of Ivania that the women are either trying to kill everybody or they're dying of shame. That's the two things that women, that women do. In this case, she dies of shame and the city uh, is named after her. So again, it's linking the Middle Eastern material to, uh, say, particularly the Dinhenicus texts that are found uh, on Irish place names elsewhere uh, within the manuscript. Again, sort of pointing perhaps to some kind of links and connections uh, between uh, the, the texts. So we can say then that the Book of Ivania displays a marked interest in the Middle Eastern origins of human history insofar as history was understood in medieval Europe. And like other kind of comparable late medieval Irish manuscripts, it operates within the theological and historical framework of salvation history. However, in its unique selection and juxtaposition of historical material, it displays particular interests and reveals its own distinctive uh, priorities. So, for example, unlike other comparable manuscripts, we don't see, for example, an interest in the salvation history of God's chosen people, the Jews, in the form that's evident in other manuscripts. I'm thinking, for example, the Yellow Book of Lecan, where um, this is expressed in the presence of a lot of t texts on King David and King Solomon, uh, the kind of really divinely ordained kingship uh, of, uh, of the Jews. And in this regard, I'd point again to the fact that Shkel Solfrach Naran in the Book of Ivania doesn't cover the Davidic kingship at all, unlike the poetic Solter Naran on which it is based, to which, which de devotes a sixth of the entire text just to the kingship of David. So where Solter Naran is very concerned with David and his kingship, it's not mentioned at all in Shkel Solfrach Naran, which only looks from Abraham uh, through to uh, Elisha and Elijah. Um, so the manuscript does display certain marked interests in relation to its Middle Eastern material. And the first and foremost interest is in the establishment, history, and dispersal of the 12 tribes of Israel. 
Okay? So this is the period that is covered in Scale Saltrock and Iran, um, the, the sons of Jacob, and the, develop, the development and establishment of the 12 tribes, then the experience of the tribes of Israel uh, in, the, in the desert, their dispersal uh, in vengeance for Christ's blood under uh, Titus and Vespasian, uh, and the other tracts, for example, Dathrev, Zieg, Magnisrael, which is concerned with the geographical spread of the tribes of, of Israel. And this interest in the 12 tribes is, I think, a starting point and a foundation for the other connected interests in the manuscript, uh, such as genealogy, geography, language, and kingship. And the importance of this material in relation to Irish history is expressed explicitly with the declaration that Patrick was descended from the sons of Israel. But it's also witnessed in the texts on language in Henicus and kingship, which write Ireland into the salvation history of the Middle East. So as a final observation then, which I hope might lead us smoothly into the next uh, paper, I would note that the book of Ivania seems not, unlike other comparable manuscripts, to be particularly interested in good or exemplary kings. Often uh, depictions of kingship in medieval Irish texts are models of, of behavior. Um, but here in Scalesholtrock and Iran, we're faced with the series of bad kings from the Egyptian pharaoh through to the kings of northern Israel uh, against whose idolatry Elisha and Elijah uh, did battle. The poem on Ahaziah and his descendants tells the story of idolatrous kings uh, whose worship of Baal is seen as symptomatic of their descent from, from Ahab. And in this respect, I was kind of intrigued by uh, Benedict Cunningham's suggestion earlier that uh, the context for the production of this book might have been related to the visit of Richard II uh, to Ireland. In the sense, there's an attitude in the manuscript that the king, a king is a king. He doesn't, you don't have to admire him or like him. He doesn't have to be a good king, but a king is a king. Uh, so it gives uh, some resonance to that perhaps royalist context for the, for the manuscript. Ahaziah and his descendants may seem like obscure kings in terms of uh, biblical history and bad kings in terms of models of leadership, but they make sense in the context of the Book of Ivania because they bear witness to the thoroughness of gene genealogical uh, research which underpins the book. So the genealogy of Christ in the Gospel of Matthew is theologically significant, but it's historically incomplete, and the inclusion of uh, this poem in the book gives a kind of historical completeness uh, to Christ's genealogy. But the presence of this poem also makes sense, uh, uh, makes sense to include these kings because their idolatry justifies the movement of divinely ordained kingship and secular power away from the house of David through the Assyrian Empire, through to the Persians, to the Greeks, and thence to the Romans. And that is the westward movement of world power as it was perceived in the Middle Ages that would eventually bring Ireland into the orbit of salvation history and would facilitate the portrayal of the Irish as God's chosen people, lending weight and authority to the language, history, geography, and genealogy, which is so important to the compilers of the Book of Ivania. Thank you.